HarperCollins and Harper Audio present Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley by Antonio Garcia Martinez, read by Dan John Miller. Author's Note The events described in this work, with the exception of one scene in New York, occurred between roughly March 2010 and October 2014 in and around the San Francisco Bay Area. This account is based on archived emails, Facebook posts and messages, tweets, and blog posts from the time. Any dialogue, if quoted from emails, texts, or messages, is verbatim. If quoted from conversation or phone calls, it's been reconstructed from memory. While these recreations are not exact, I've done my level best to capture the spirit and significance of every scene depicted. To those who may have been present but feel I have misconstrued events, I invite you to write your own competing account. Together, we may arrive at the set of mutually agreed-upon lies called history. Note, some names have been omitted to protect the truly guilty. Prologue The Garden of Forking Paths Had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. Attributed to Alfonso X, the Wise of Castile. Friday, April 13, 2012 The area housing the Facebook High Command was a completely unexceptional cluster of desks, remarkable only for the pile of sporting equipment kept by Sam Lesson, one of Zuck's lieutenants. Similar clusterings, arranged like hedgerows, extended as far as you could see into either leg of the large L formed by Building 16 on Facebook's campus. The decor was standard-issue Silicon Valley tech. Industrial shag carpet, exposed ceilings revealing ventilation ducts and fire-retardant-covered steel beams, and the odd piece of home-brewed installation art. An imposing Lego wall featuring the blocky murals left by employees, another wall papered with the vaguely Orwellian posters the in-house print shop churned out. At the exact vertex of Building 16 was the aquarium, Facebook's glass-walled throne room where Zuck held court all day. It jutted into the main courtyard, allowing passing Facebookers to snatch a glance of their famed leader while strolling to lunch. Its windows were reputedly bulletproof. Just outside the aquarium's entrance was a makeshift foyer with couches and some trendy coffee table book or another, which the ever-present scrum of waiting FB courtiers ignored as they made last-minute tweaks to presentations or demos. An adjoining mini-kitchen, like so many that littered the campus, stocked plenty of lemon-lime Gatorade, Zuck's official beverage. Inside Facebook's campus, geography was destiny, and your physical proximity to Zuck was a clear indicator of your importance. Along the periphery of the L ran the exclusive conference rooms of Facebook's five business unit leaders. Zuck's desk neighbors at that point were Sheryl Sandberg, the star chief operating officer, COO of Facebook, Andrew Boz Bosworth, the engineering director who had created Newsfeed, and Mike Schrepfer, Facebook's chief technical officer, CTO. None of them were at their desks as I strode in from the courtyard that afternoon. Unlike much of the user-facing side of Facebook, the ads team was held at arm's length as if it was a pair of sweaty underwear in the next building over. That would eventually change, and ads team members would occupy some prime real estate in and around Zuck's and Cheryl's desks.
That was still a long way off, though, and every senior management meeting I was pulled into involved crossing the courtyard at ground level. The centerpiece of this Facebook Champs-Élysées were the letters H-A-C-K, actually inlaid in the concrete slab that formed the courtyard and easily a good 100 feet long. Angled to be readable on the Google Maps satellite image of campus, it appeared as the supreme Facebookian commandment. My mission today was a meeting with Zuck, scheduled in Cheryl's conference room, which was named, for reasons I never discovered, only good news. Skirting the pile of athletic equipment around the executive desk cluster, I walked into the glass cube of the conference room, which featured a long white table flanked by a score of pricey Aeron chairs, a flat panel screen on one wall, and a whiteboard on the other. Most of the meeting attendants, except the two most important ones, were already seated. Gokul Rajaram, the product management head of ads, and my boss, was slouched in his usual twitching, anxious knot. He took a nanosecond's break from his ever-present phone as his eyes rose to mine. Next to Gokul sat Brian Boland, a buzz-cut and balding guy you imagined had wrestled in college and whom cozy corporate life had made thick with age. Boland ran product marketing for the ads team, the group that wove the thick packing layer of polished bullshit that any ads product was wrapped in before being given to the sales team, who would then push it on advertisers. Sitting at a remove and staring into his phone was Greg Baudros, a former Googler who ran both search and ads, but seemed more absence than presence in either. Mark Rabkin, the engineering manager in ads, and an early hire on the Facebook ads team, was closest to me in rank and attitude. A close collaborator since my first days at Facebook, he resembled a less satanic version of Vladimir Putin. Elliot Schrage was in his usual perch, close and to the right of the table's end. Schrage held an elevated-sounding and vague title, but was Cheryl's consigliere in all matters. In his fifties, wearing a button-down shirt and business-casual slacks, he seemed out of place among the fleece-and-jeans-wearing techies. He could have been mistaken for a senior lawyer in a stodgy East Coast law firm, which is what he had been before joining Google and the Cheryl sphere. I took a seat toward the opposite end of the Cheryl intimates and flipped open my Facebook-issue MacBook Pro to nervously remind myself of the meeting's script. The agenda was pitching Zuck on the three new ads-targeting ideas I had dreamed up and which constituted a big monetization bet the company was, hopefully, soon to make. Camille Hart, Cheryl's all-powerful executive administrative assistant, or admin, milled about and tapped away on her laptop, wrangling meeting participants. Where's Fisher? asked Cheryl as she blew in through the door and took her seat at the end of the table. No meeting could start without the minion of Elliot Schrage and David Fisher, the entourage she had poached out of Google. Camille bolted out to find him. Most everyone stayed silent, pecking at smartphones or laptops. Boland and Cheryl quietly conferred on the state of the slides we were presenting. We'd already pre-pitched her our products, tweaking the message to maximally appeal to Zuck. Any Zuck meeting around ads required a bit of pre-chewing and spoon-feeding. The reason was simple. Ads were not something he cared about at the time, and I imagine he saw these meetings more as duty-bound drudgery than anything else. In one year in Facebook ads, I had seen the famously micromanaging founder and CEO in the ads area precisely once, when he was walking around the building in a circle to get in his 10,000 daily steps. 
This stood in sharp contrast to the gossipy stories I had heard from product managers on the user-facing side of Facebook about the withering spotlight one lived in when working a product Zuck cared about. In our pre-meeting meeting, Cheryl had let slip various hints about the best way to present our plans. She clearly knew her boss inside and out. Here was a woman who excelled in the role of gatekeeper and shepherd to difficult and powerful men, whether that role was chief of staff for the prickly U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers or COO of and for Zuck. Between her ability to navigate and manage the mercurial and fractious political landscape of a complex organization like Facebook and her ability to shape messages for Zuck, she was both de facto and de jure, the person who ran Facebook ads. As the debate about the future of Facebook monetization grew more polarized and heated, these meetings would resemble the Supreme Court of Cheryl, the one place where conflicting views could be aired with some hope of resolution. In came Fisher, slim, dapper, and the best-coiffed man at Facebook. Originally one of Cheryl's reports at the Treasury Department, he had begun his career as a journalist at U.S. News and World Report, and then, as with many senior Facebook people, joined Google. As Facebook's vice president of sales and operations, he ran the entire sales team for Cheryl, and in my time at the company, I rarely heard him utter anything other than corporate platitudes and MBA speak. Stanford Graduate School of Business, O2. Bien sûr. Greetings all around as Fisher took a seat to Cheryl's left, near the head of the table, opposite Schrage. Executive admin's duty done, a satisfied Camille disappeared to wherever she lived at FB. Noiselessly, Zuck padded into the conference room, staring at his smartphone, and sat down in the empty seat to Schrage's right. Now the meeting could really begin. Cheryl kicked things off. Mark, as you know, we've been considering some new initiatives in ads. Way to understate things, Cheryl. The company had announced its intention to go public months ago, and the IPO was imminent. Precisely when the company was opening itself to investor scrutiny, its revenue growth was slowing, and revenue itself was plateauing. The narratives the company had woven about the new magic of social media marketing were in deep reruns with advertisers, many of whom were beginning to openly question the fortunes they had spent on Facebook thus far, often with little to show for it. A colossal year-long bet the company had made on a product called Open Graph and its accompanying monetization spin-off sponsored stories had been an absolute failure in the market. The company's senior leadership had called on the ads team to dream up something fast to revive the lagging fortunes of the enterprise. This being Facebook, the initiatives originated not at the senior levels of the company, but rather at the lower. Random engineers would conceived of a bit of cleverness, glib product managers, that would be your humble correspondent, who had managed to seduce a few people to their vision. On the agenda this afternoon were three proposed products, each very different from the other. The first involved using Facebook's like buttons, social plugins in Facebook ease, as all-seeing eyes that would hoover up users' browsing behavior for fun and profit. A bit of background for the non-techie. When you load a page in your browser, everything you see, and most of the things you don't, is not from the company whose .com address you've entered. The way the modern web works, different elements come from different places. Every element you load, whether you like it or not, touches your browser and is allowed to read data in the form of what's known as cookies. 
The popularity of Facebook's like and share buttons meant Facebook was on something like half the web in a mature market like the United States. As you browse the web far and wide, from shoe shopping on Zappos.com to news reading on NYTimes.com, Facebook sees you everywhere, as if it had a closed-circuit TV on all city streets. Facebook's terms of service had so far prohibited the use of the resulting data for commercial purposes, but this bold proposal suggested lifting that self-imposed restriction. As ominous and powerful as that may sound, it was not guaranteed to succeed, as the actual value of that data was unknown. I knew a thing or two about the value of Facebook data. A year before, I had been hired as Facebook's first product manager for ads targeting, charged with converting Facebook's user data into money by whatever legal means available. This task had proved considerably more difficult than it sounds. For months, the targeting team and I had been testing and ingesting every piece of Facebook user data posts, check-ins, shared links, friends, likes, to see if it would improve the targeting and delivery of Facebook ads. Almost without exception, none of it increased monetization to a substantial degree. The miserable conclusion was that Facebook, though assumed to be a rich repository of user data, did not in fact have much commercially useful data at all. Social plug-in data, despite its ominous and all-pervasive nature, might fall into that same depressing category. The second and third proposals were more radical from a business, if not a legal perspective, and reflected this grim realization. The plan was to join the Facebook ads experience to data generated completely outside Facebook. Thus far, all ads on Facebook used FB-only data. But this proposal would involve tapping into external data like browsing history, online shopping, and offline purchases in physical shops. Historically, Facebook had been a walled garden in which advertisers could not use their data on Facebook or use Facebook data elsewhere. From the data perspective, it was as if Facebook was absent from the Internet ecosystem, off on some island, under its own complete control. Via two different technical mechanisms, one roughly in keeping with the existing ad system, another vastly more sophisticated, we were proposing to bridge that divide at last. Both proposals, at an abstract level, were equivalent. At the implementation and business level, however, they were vastly different and required completely different approaches to the advertising market. Zuck and Cheryl hated projecting PowerPoint decks, so somebody had printed out the slides I had prepared and stapled them into neat packets. Boland had summarized debates and meetings going back months in easy-to-parse bullet points on the first page. That's all anyone ever saw, my detailed technical schematics with walkthroughs of data flows and outside integration points were, as I suspected, completely ignored. Cheryl wouldn't have cared about the technical detail, and Zuck wouldn't have had the patience to go through it anyhow. As I observed more than once at Facebook, and as I imagine is the case in all organizations from business to government, high-level decisions that affected thousands of people and billions in revenue would be made on gut feel, the residue of whatever historical politics were in play, and the ability to cater persuasive messages to people either busy, impatient, or uninterested, or all three. Boland did his breezy best walking through this summary slide, leaving out the endless debates concerning privacy and legal regulation that had eaten up countless hours of everyone's time. 
If ads already made Zuck drowse, then privacy trade-offs would have sent him keeling over off his Aeron chair. Whatever Zuck approved, we'd engineer the legal workings. So, do we think using the plug-in data will make us more money? Zuck asked. Boland and Gokul turned to me, the usual cue for the lowest-ranked but most informed guy in the room, that is, the actual product manager, to pipe up and say something. Footnote. Facebook, given its size, was a relatively flat organization. There were still roughly three types of hierarchical characters in FB ads at the time. First, the senior management level, whose members spent their lives in a blizzard of meetings interspersed with email breaks and who formed a middle management cadre between Zuck, Cheryl, and everyone else. This was Gokul, Boland, Baudros, and most everyone else in that room. Then there were the product and engineering teams, whose members usually spent their time on the engineering floor, hacking people and product. That's me and everyone else who actually built anything. And then last, the sales and operations people, of which there was a small army who occupied the unfrequented buildings on campus and the equally unfrequented international offices, the lowest level, despite often being the face of Facebook to the world and bedecking themselves with fancy titles like Head of Facebook EMEA, had no real impact on what product got built and were there mostly for show. End footnote. My brain reacted like an old truck in winter, failing to start and cranking away futilely. Well, that depends. I mean, there are lots of things that affect monetization. We haven't really done the controlled A-B studies, as it's legally touchy, but it is possible that it's unique data in some way. Of course, there's also the issue of whether the like button is even where we want it to be data-wise, as, why don't you just answer the question? Blurted Zuck, cutting me off. Panic breeds focus. I don't think it would move the needle much, given recent experience. I replied flatly. Silence, as we all waited for what Zuck would say. You can do this, but don't use the like button, he said finally. The statement percolated through the room. So yes to retargeting, but no to using social plugins, reiterated Cheryl, more question to Zuck than assertion. Footnote. Retargeting is ad speak for the practice of showing a user ads based on what he or she has browsed on the web. At its simplest, it's the creepy tactic of showing you an ad for a product you just eyed on Amazon or another online commerce site. At the time of the meeting described here, the targeting was more sophisticated than merely showing you a version of a product you've already seen, but the term was really code for predicating your experience on site A with things you've done on sites B, C, and D, and perhaps even done offline in physical stores. End footnote. Yes, and that's all he ever said about the matter. What was still undecided was which of the two proposals Facebook would pursue. A year from this meeting and in this same conference room, with more or less the same cast assembled, we'd finally decide that question. It would take Facebook an exasperating year to even decide to decide. The resulting decision, when it finally came, would see me ejected from Facebook and change how Facebook made money for years to come. But right then, on that Friday afternoon, I was giddy inside. The last two months of scheming had worked out. We could build this magic targeting device I had proposed that would combine the two great Internet data streams, Facebook and the outside world, and change everything. I took one look at Gokul, who half-nodded. Cheryl turned to the next item on the meeting agenda. This was her weekly meeting between her, the ads team, and Zuck. Product reviews were packed into 15-minute slots. 
Other product managers had filed into the room during the brief discussion and were waiting their turns. As discreetly as possible, I vacated the spring-loaded Aeron chair and slid out the door. I had my marching orders. Part 1. Disturbing the Peace The great source of both the misery and disorders of human life seems to arise from overrating the difference between one permanent situation and another. Avarice overrates the difference between poverty and riches, ambition that between a private and a public station, vainglory that between obscurity and extensive reputation. The person under the influence of any of those extravagant passions is not only miserable in his actual situation, but is often disposed to disturb the peace of society in order to arrive at that which he so foolishly admires. Adam Smith, The Theory of Moral Sentiments The Undertakers of Capitalism Commercial credit is the creation of modern times and belongs, in its highest perfection, only to the most enlightened and best-governed nations. It has raised armies, equipped navies, and, triumphing over the gross power of mere numbers, it has established national superiority on the foundation of intelligence, wealth, and well-directed industry. Daniel Webster, U.S. Senate Speech, March 18, 1834 Footnote a version of this quote was engraved on the bronze facade of the Moody's building in downtown Manhattan. Moody's was one of the credit rating agencies whose incompetence or illicit collusion with banks was partially responsible for the credit crisis. End footnote. November 2007 Hey, what's going on with risk right now? I looked up from a row of four monitors covered in blue windows flowing with computer code, a financial matrix only a select few understood but whose outputs made the world go round. The speaker was Jonathan Mann, J-Mann, in the trading floor's argot. He had a golf club slung across his shoulders, his arms draped over its ends, a blasphemous image of Christ financial. Credit spreads, the FICO scores of the largest companies in the world, were exploding, meaning the world's financial faith was withering. The crucifixion was an apt metaphor. Not sure. We'll look into it, J-Mann. I replied, barely looking up from my four computer screens. His bloodshot eyes fixed on me for a moment, then he retreated to his desk, which featured even more screens than mine. J-Man worked for Goldman Sachs trading credit indices, basically lumped together sets of credit bets on large corporations, almost like mutual funds. Unlike in the world of stocks, prices in the credit world weren't determined by some vague premonition of future value, but on the perceived future probability of corporate death. In credit land, there were only ever funerals, no weddings or baby showers. By betting on death, we were the bookie undertakers, gambling on either this or that company, living or dying. J-Man's malfunctioning index was not my real problem, though. General Motors was my problem. Southwest Airlines was my problem. Ford Motor Company was my problem. I looked over my screens at Charlie McGarrah, the Yale math grad who traded airlines and auto companies, and whose quant manservant I was, building sophisticated pricing models for the abstruse derivatives that paid our bonuses, and maintaining the clean flow of data that gave us a view on this cutthroat world. As per usual on days like today, he was worked up into a lather, screaming price quotes, either at people on the floor or into his phone headset. 
Rob Jackson, his junior trader, was next to him entering trades into a risk system to be digested by the code I wrote, producing the pricing models that let traders navigate this precarious world and guide yet more trades. What was the value of the full faith and credit of United Airlines? Whatever the fuck Charlie McGarrah said it was, as he was the market maker in airline credit for Goldman Sachs. The broker of public perception, he was both the market's conduit and its lion tamer, buffeted by market forces out of his control, but also warping the market according to his predatory designs. For two years now, Charlie had been betting on the demise of America's anemic auto industry, plus the death of several airlines. We were always just one Ford Pinto-esque safety recall, or several months of high jet fuel prices away from a truly gargantuan windfall. One could easily imagine the sardonic grin on Charlie's pale face if news of a United jet crashing into a mountain were to flash across his Bloomberg terminal. Thanks to me, he could tell exactly how much money we'd make if that happened. But even with the growing housing credit crisis, industries like cars and planes remained creditworthy. The damn planes stayed up, fuel prices stayed down, and no one figured out what a piece of shit the 2008 Dodge Avenger was. Even amid the perpetual convulsions of fear and greed that possessed everyone on the floor, reason would occasionally out. Like a rock-bottom alcoholic contemplating his vomit-stained sheets through the haze of another post-bender hangover, you occasionally asked yourself, how did I get here? How could I do this to myself? Where was the humanity? I joined Goldman Sachs after five flailing years in a physics PhD program at Berkeley. At the time, my graduate stipend, taxable as income, was the princely sum of $19,000. The average salary at Goldman Sachs in 2005 was $521,000, and that's counting each and every trader, salesperson, investment banker, secretary, mailboy, shoeshiner, and window cleaner on the payroll. One of the few things I took from my sordid grad student pad was a copy of Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker, that classic of the Wall Street trading genre, for reference. My job on arrival? I was a pricing quant on the Goldman Sachs corporate credit trading desk. Footnote, quant is short for some flavor of quantitative analyst or quantitative trader. These are the financial engineers who recycle the mathematics of fluid mechanics or probability for the world of filthy lucre. They absolutely litter Wall Street now, and some areas of finance, like the hyperfast world of high-frequency trading, couldn't exist without them. The most authentic view of their world was penned by a founder of the Goldman Strategies team, Emmanuel Derman, in his classic My Life as a Quant. End footnote. That means I was responsible for modeling and pricing the various credit derivatives that the biggest credit trading house in the world traded. We'll get into what a derivative is in a moment more important at Goldman Sachs than the what was the who. Goldman Sachs was unusual among Wall Street banks in that it had mostly kept a partnership management structure. Hence, every incoming employee was hired by a specific partner, and you were that partner's boy. My feudal liege lord was a short, balding guy with an intense stare and oddly biblical name, Elisha Wiesel. Elisha was none other than the only son of Elie Wiesel the famous Holocaust survivor whose horrifying night is required reading for many American high schoolers. His father may have been a Holocaust luminary and a public intellectual, but his son was a vicious, greedy little prick. Footnote. 
For fans of schadenfreude, life is a never-ending feast. When the Madoff scandal, the largest Ponzi scheme in American history, erupted in late 2008, it would turn out that the Elie Wiesel Foundation for Humanity had invested all of its assets with Madoff. Ellie's son, Alicia, my boss, was the foundation's treasurer. This reminds me of the joke about mixed emotions being the sight of your mother-in-law driving over a cliff in your new Porsche. Shame about the loss to such a worthy cause, but as for the hit to Alicia Wiesel, well, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. End footnote. His lieutenant, my boss, was a Caltech mathematics grad from my home state of Florida. Ryan McCorvey, RTM, per the three-letter acronym everyone was known by on the internal messaging system, was tall and gangly with twiggy arms that emerged from a pot-bellied, ectomorphic body. His one flash of personal color was a tattoo of the infinity symbol on his forearm, studiously covered while at Goldman. Footnote. But wait, schadenfreude lover, there's more. My former boss, RTM, as of January 2016, is currently out on bail while awaiting trial for the sexual molestation of minors. It's been alleged that he groped a group of young girls in a public pool, innocent until proven guilty, of course. Already proven guilty is my former trader, Matt Taylor, who would also do a turn in the clink. He went rogue and somehow fooled both Goldman's risk systems and me, his quant, by taking outsized positions in exchange-traded securities, risking billions of dollars of house capital in order to juice his returns and his annual bonus. He did his time in the federal pen and now runs a pool-cleaning business in Florida. Such a sterling lot, my Wall Street colleagues. End footnote. There were other characters in this drama, too. The traders were crafty and quick-witted, but with little technical sophistication and the attention span of an ADHD kid hopped up on energy drinks and jolly ranchers. Their role was to trade with Goldman clients and other traders at rival firms, posting prices to buy and sell securities and their derivatives, all the while both hedging their books and making smart bets with the firm's money. It was like juggling flaming chainsaws while dancing a jig on top of a speeding train. The sales guys were complete tools, with a collective IQ safely in the double digits. Their only role was to woo and ply clients with potential trades, presenting the glib appearance of trading savvy and market control, and then skulking away to a trader and begging for a special price for a client trade. And the quants, called strategists or just strats in Goldman speak? Mostly failed scientists like me who had sold out to the man and suddenly found themselves, after making it through years of advanced relativity and quantum mechanics, with a golf club-wielding gorilla called a trader peering over their shoulder, asking them where their risk report was. We were quantitative enablers, offering the new and shiny blessings of modern computation to the old business of buying and selling. But giving sophisticated models and fast computers to traders was like giving handguns and tequila to teenage boys. The quants were there to make sure the guns were loaded, but also to make sure the traders didn't shoot themselves in the foot. Though crucial to the drama, we weren't terribly appreciated. In fact, we were basically the traders' little bitches, and any quant who was honest with himself realized that. In time, we quants developed knee calluses from genuflecting to service the traders on whose profits our livelihoods depended. The only time we quants shone was when some particularly hairy deal came up, and a befuddled trader dropped off a thick bond indenture document, pleading for help. Peering into these deals was like looking at the zoomed-in penetration shot in a cheesy porn video. He could barely tell which end was up 
which part was which, or, more important, who exactly was screwing whom. The quant aspect, involving detailed matters of future risk and optionality, almost didn't matter in the end. One lacrosse-playing Penn graduate would agree on price via phone with another lacrosse-playing Cornell grad, and life would resume its speedy course to another deal. Quants were the eunuchs at the orgy, the fluffers on the porn set of high finance. We were the ever-present British guy in every Hollywood World War II film, there to add a touch of class and exotic sophistication, but not really consequential to the plot, except perhaps to conveniently take some bad guy's bullet. There were some rewards. When the markets presented an apocalyptic Boschian landscape, every goldman grunt, sergeant, and general would close ranks and form a Greek phalanx of greed. Unlike almost every other bank on the street, Goldman could actually calculate its risk across desks and asset classes out to five decimals. The partners, who had much of their net worth wrapped up in Goldman stock, held tense meetings and came up with a plan to save the foundering ship. Favors were called in, clients squeezed, risks very quickly hedged and positions unloaded. Despite the mayhem and all the promises of drama in liar's poker, I rarely saw anyone lose their cool for longer than two seconds. We bled, but others died, and you felt fortunate to have a front-row seat at the biggest financial show in a generation. What's a derivative? Here, I'll create one for you. I just signed my name on a slip of paper. If my writerly reputation takes off thanks to the book that you, and hopefully a million other people, are holding in your hands, then that slip of paper becomes an autograph and could be worth thousands in this sweet by-and-by. If, alternatively, I die in complete obscurity, that signature is worth zero, less than zero. You'd pay someone to dispose of it. The noteworthy details are that the derivative holds no intrinsic worth of its own and rather derives its value completely from some other thing, in this case, my authorial renown. Also important is how wide its value can swing. A banker would call this highly levered. It could be nothing, or it could be thousands. While the underlying value of my writing skill will fluctuate within a relatively narrow band, even if I'm successful, in the improbable event of literary immortality, that derivative can be worth very much indeed, or nothing at all. What's a credit default swap? CDS, then? A CDS is like car insurance, except it protects a pile of money someone has lent, rather than a pile of glass and steel called an automobile. Some asshole keys your car and destroys $500 of value. The insurance contract pays you that amount. The thing gets stolen, the policy pays out the total value of the car. Credit default swaps work superficially the same way. You lend someone money in the form of a bond. They don't pay you back, or pay you back only partially. The guy who sold you the CDS makes you whole again, and you recover what you lost by lending money. Here the similarity ends, however. Unlike with car insurance, with CDSs, anyone can get a policy on your car, even if he or she has no material interest in it. In other words, people other than the car owner can insure it. Not only can they take out a policy, they can write one as well, that is, act as their own mini-geico and offer to repay losses. If the price of insurance is too high given the risk and badly mispriced in some way, then greedy market players will be happy to sell you some. Perhaps they know you keep your car in a garage in an otherwise dangerous neighborhood and therefore insurance for you is needlessly expensive. Or perhaps the opposite. 
They're car thieves and plan on stealing it and want to profit both from stealing your car and from cashing in the insurance claim on it. And so they buy a policy before they commit the theft. Wall Street does that too. Credit is the third-person singular conjugation of the present tense of the Latin verb credere, to believe. It's the most exceptional and interesting thing in the financial world. Similar leaps of belief underlie every human transaction in life. Your wife might cheat on you, but you hope otherwise. The online store you paid may not ship you your goods, but you trust otherwise. Credit derivatives are just the explicit encapsulations of such beliefs, in financial and contractual form, for corporate entities. Unlike other financial securities, such as shares of IBM stock or oil futures, a credit derivative is not even some theoretical value of a tangible good. It's the perceived value of a complete intangible, the perception of the probability of meeting some future obligation. People often asked me in the early days of my tech career how I had gone from Wall Street to ads technology. Such a person almost certainly knew nothing about either industry, or the answer would have been obvious. I did the same thing the whole time, putting a price on a human's perception, be it of a General Motors bond or a pair of shoes coveted on Zappos. It's the same difference either way. Only the scale of the money pile changes. For a random reason I'd soon forget, in early 2006, I walked onto the interest rates trading floor inside Goldman's headquarters at 85 Broad Street and detected the stomach-churning odor of fast food grease. Two whole rows of desks, formerly occupied by tense traders speaking tersely into phones, were now occupied by what appeared to be a rowdy battalion of kids in their best Century 21 finery. Footnote. Century 21 is an endearingly retrograde discount department store housed just off the northern border of the financial district in Manhattan. Its only real selling point was a $40 Hugo Boss shirt you had to try on, pinned still in the fabric and soon into you, right there on the floor. End footnote. Crowds of traders dressed in very not-Century 21 finery surrounded them, like the beginnings of a lynch mob. Alan Brazil, the managing director for mortgage strategies at Goldman Sachs, was rationing out small, paper-bound grease pucks, like a World War I commanding officer handing out munitions to his troops before an assault. It was, of course, the White Castle burger-eating contest. All trading turned from interest rate swaps, minimum notional size, $50 million, to wagering on which young Goldman acolyte would down the most White Castle burgers in an hour. The betting structure was a typical Vegas-style over-under bet on how many burgers would be eaten without puking. The surrounding crowd turned into a howling, gesticulating mass of electrified greed, with the serious traders signaling to each other and actually writing down trades in notebooks, as they would million-dollar positions. The odds-on favorite was a young analyst named Rich Rosenblum, who employed the Kobayashi technique to get the tiny grease pucks down. Footnote. Takaru Kobayashi is a pint-sized Japanese man who holds or has held most major records in the revolting sport of competitive eating. He pioneered such innovative speed-eating techniques as the dunking described here. He once ate 64 hot dogs in 10 minutes at Nathan's Famous at Coney Island in 2009. End footnote. This involved splitting them in half and dunking the bready, greasy mess into a cup of water to pre-moisten them for easier inhalation. The underdog was a blonde female intern from Princeton who looked like she weighed maybe as much as a dozen burgers. 
a circle of her friends piled into the overside of her betting book, betting on incongruously high numbers for her, all the while knowing her secret Princeton Eating Club rap sheet, insider trading at its finest. And there she went, blowing past 15 burgers and approaching 20 to everyone's surprise. At 22, she was tied with the going leader, Rich. Then, the unexpected. The fat Asian kid next to her, who was looking a bit queasy, started projectile vomiting burger chunks. Alan Brazil, the old burger contestant capo, instantly jumped in with a plastic garbage can to catch the mess. The blonde girl's support crew, who had knowingly entered this burger black hole into the race for shits and profits, started madly waving their arms and egging her on to distract her from the pukerama next door. If she tuned into the vomit monsoon, it could unleash an upchuck chain reaction. Alan wisely walked the Asian kid and the barf pail off the floor. Rosenblum's count reached 26, as recorded on the leaderboard, but the blonde Princetonian managed to get to the overside of her insider trading racket's bet, which was all her betting syndicate needed. The crowd went wild as the hour expired, and just as quickly, the entire riot dispersed as everyone hurried back to phones and risk reports. The trading floor smelled like the inside of a deep fryer for the whole day. Capitalism marched inexorably onward. Footnote. And what became of Rich Rosenblum, he of the Rabelaisian burger stamina? He eventually made managing director at Goldman Sachs and rose to be its senior oil options trader. Capitalism rewards true talent. End footnote. Of course, the betting didn't stop at burgers. Analysts would be pressed into push-up contests with over-under bets on the total. And so, on a random walk across the floor, Busily engaged with the most important work of capitalism, one could trip on a trading analyst and a particularly fit sales VP, faces red with exertion, sweating through their pressed shirts and pumping out their 237th push-up in an hour, with shouted bets raging all around. On Friday afternoons, to shatter the pre-weekend slump, the entire desk would play an interesting game. Everybody chucked his or her corporate ID into a sack and anteed up something like 20 to $100. Higher ranks paid more. Then the head trader would remove the IDs one by one from the sack, calling out the names. The last ID in the sack got the entire pot. It was winner take all, and no splitting the pot at the end. When there were only 20 or so IDs left, things got really interesting. A mob formed and trading started. People with IDs left in the sack sold their IDs to the highest bidder, selling out early and monetizing rather than risking elimination. Fair value for an ID is a simple calculation. If the pot is $2,000 and there are 10 IDs left, then the option on one ID is just $2,000 divided by 10 equals $200. That's not the way the market traded, though. IDs would inevitably sell for a premium, and the closer the process was to a close, that is, the smaller the number of IDs left, the higher the premium got on a percentage basis. Mentally, people were irrationally willing to overbid for a large payout, and the likelier the payout, the more they'd overpay. Also, there were structural forces at work. It was Friday afternoon in New York, and people wanted the cash to blow on the weekend. I bet that steak at Peter Luger tasted even better if it was bought with the trading floor's money. The winner would pocket, if he could, the thick stack of twenties and hundreds, and everyone would take back his or her ID. By 5 p.m., the trading floor was a ghost town. To fans of irony, Wall Street provided endless delectation. 
The all-out, unfettered, and glorified pursuit of gain was like sex in pubescent adolescence. It was all you could think about, and all you wanted to think about. But there was corporate decorum to maintain, all the same. We were doing God's work, remember. God is certainly also doing Goldman's work, from the looks. And so, after a particularly competitive round of Friday afternoon push-ups and ID bingo, a memo about office decorum went out to the entire floor. It boiled down to a reminder that betting was prohibited on the trading floor. It reminded me of that classic scene in Dr. Strangelove, in which the character played by George C. Scott gets into a wrestling match with the Russian ambassador inside the control room at the Pentagon and is sternly admonished. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. No fucking in the brothel either, dear comrades. While on Wall Street, I had the good fortune to witness the tail end of an epical historical transformation. Given my role in the derivatives markets, this transformation was something glimpsed from afar, but its impact was profound and relevant to our story. In September 2000, way before the events depicted here, Goldman Sachs acquired a decades-old company called Spear, Leeds, and Kellogg. SLK was an old-school stockbroker and market-making firm that ran markets on exchange-traded stocks and options. It employed armies of traders and clerks, the sort of people in colored jackets busily gesticulating at one another across some mosh pit, such as you see at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Those hundreds of traders were serviced by a couple of programmers with basic options pricing models running on a few machines. By 2007, those hundreds of traders were gone. Instead, there were two traders, 20 quants, building and maintaining models, and hundreds of very fast machines running code. Those guys in colored jackets who still populate a few exchanges, like the dinosaur fossils at a natural history museum, they're there only for show. They've been replaced by expensive blinking boxes housed as close as possible to the real exchange and connected with the shortest cables one can buy, rent, or bury in the ground. In this new world, the only speed limits were Moore's Law and Einstein's Relativity. The business logic was as fast as microchips can do math without melting themselves, and as fast as pulses of light can fly through fiber-optic cables. The key insight here is that what happened with SLK wasn't some exceptional niche piece of technological innovation, but a harbinger of what would happen to the entire world. In the future, anywhere non-trivial decisions took place, it would be computers talking to one another, with humans involved only in the writing of the logic itself. Finance saw the innovation first, because the stakes were high, and the value of an incremental computational advantage was very large. To paraphrase the very quotable Silicon Valley venture capitalist Mark Andreessen, in the future, there will be two types of jobs. People who tell computers what to do, and people who are told by computers what to do. Wall Street was merely the first inkling. The next place where this shift would be seen at whopping scale in terms of both money and technology, though I didn't realize at the time, was in Internet advertising. And after that, it would hit transportation, Uber, hostelry, Airbnb, food delivery, Instacart, and so on. To take the theory further, Computation would no longer fill some hard gap in a human workflow process, such as the calculators used by accountants. Humans would fill the hard gaps in a purely computer workflow process, like Uber's drivers. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. There's an additional lesson here. 
This shift from humans to computers took place predominantly on the equity side of things. The debt side of the financial world, for various reasons, still traded in what amounted to open outcry markets with humans talking to one another, whether through phones or instant messaging systems. It was capitalism at the speed a tongue can wag or hands can type. This was mostly because a company's debt is complex and multifarious, and entities like General Motors have hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of debt floating around the world's trading floors. Briefly, they are not what economists call fungible, meaning interchangeable, the way quarter-inch screws or bottle caps are. Credit derivatives are different, though. Protection against General Motors' default is just that, a guarantee against a clear and one-time event. The only thing that varies, and even that in standardized time windows, is how long the policy lasts, for example, three months or three years. To continue the car analogy, when an insurance company insures your jalopy, it doesn't take into account the infinite combinations of features, car colors, wheel rims, post-purchase modifications, and dangling air fresheners. It knows the make, model, year, and location of the vehicle, and the value insured. That's it. There are really only a few hundred types of car insurance when you break it down, likewise with credit default swaps. So why not trade CDSs on exchanges, as we do shares of Google? The question was raised in 2008 as the financial world burned. The internal chatter on the desk was that the government would exploit the crisis to regulate our Wild West market. Goldman, briefly, considered taking the initiative and self-regulating into exchange-traded markets instead. It decided against doing so, with reasoning I'd see again at Facebook. An incumbent in a market dominated by a few, with total information asymmetry, and the ability to make prices on the market rather than just take them, has little incentive to increase transparency. The bid-ask spread, that is, Goldman's difference in price when buying or selling the same thing, was huge on credit derivatives. Goldman made fortune simply passing a piece of paper from its left hand to its right, from seller of risk to buyer of it. While trading on exchanges might have increased the overall volume of trade and hence profits, the openness would have eroded Goldman's privileged view of the credit markets and opened it to upstart competition, not to mention financial scrutiny. Even if the open approach had increased the total size of the market, Goldman felt more comfortable owning a small market than merely participating in a larger one. Thus, many markets were and are inefficient because that inefficiency is very profitable to those running the market, even if only in the short-term picture. As I would eventually see, Wall Street and Silicon Valley possess surprising parallels. I envied the religious. Their inner lives are so blessed. If you're Christian, do as the gospel says, live a Christ-like life, and salvation is yours. If you're Orthodox Jewish, wear all black in a borsalino, check off your share of the 613 mitzvot, and you can await the Messiah with an untroubled heart. No gnawing sense of existential dread when staring at a godless, star-filled night sky. Wall Street is even simpler than religion. Your entire worth as a human is defined by one number, the compensation number your boss tells you at the end of the year. Pay on Wall Street works as follows. Your base salary is actually quite modest, but your bonus is where the real money is. That bonus is completely discretionary and can vary anywhere from zero to a multiple of your base salary. So, come mid-December, 
Everyone on the desk lines up outside the partner's office, like the communion line at Christmas Mass, and awaits his or her little crumb off the big Wall Street table. An entire year's worth of blood, sweat, and tears comes down to that one moment, and the entire New York economy marches to the beat of that bonus drum. Without that number, your privileged place in the New York hierarchy goes away. Gone is the house in the Hamptons. Gone is the duplex on the Upper West Side. Gone is your kid's $30,000 preschool. And that's why Wall Street has that roach motel quality. People check in, but rarely check out. By the time you've been through a couple of bonus cycles and seen that wad of cash hit your bank account in mid-January, you can't imagine a life without it, which is exactly how the senior management at the Wall Street banks like it. If Wall Street investment bankers were dogs, they would flaunt their expensive collars and leashes as marks of status, not realizing their true purpose. My collar was tiny in the scheme of things, but enough to rub my neck raw. Such canine reflections were on my mind one day while reading the New York Times during a lull at the trading desk. To an active market participant, the New York Times business section is so dated and slow to respond, it may as well be a history book which is why it was very random indeed that I noticed something on recently funded Silicon Valley startups. Given the pestilential news from the street, an upbeat headline must have shown like a blinking fluorescent sign. Almost in passing, the article quoted the CEO of a company called Adcomy, which had just raised its third round of financing. The one-line description was something about using mathematics for advertising. Checking out their website, I noticed that there was an open position for something called a research scientist. On an absolute whim, almost as a man enlists in the army or consents to a tattoo, I sent them my CV. Then I completely forgot about it. A week later, Adkami's recruiter called and offered to fly me to California. With nothing to do but watch capitalism fibrillate, I accepted, and a few days later, I was back in the Bay Area I had left three years earlier. Perhaps because I didn't really give a damn, I breezed through the gauntlet of interviews, rederiving the probabilities around the birthday paradox with a newly minted Ph.D. named David Kochak, and together with the VP of research, filling a wall-sized whiteboard with some long-winded calculation or another. All I really remember is that I managed to catch a Ford Mustang out of the rental agency, and once released from interview hell at 6 p.m., I still had a good three hours until my flight. I then embarked on what had really drawn me to SF. I hightailed it to the Mission District, parked the rental in that somewhat dodgy neighborhood, and went to Zeitgeist for one of their Bloody Marys. Footnote. Zeitgeist, if you'll excuse a geek reference, is like the bar on Tatooine in Star Wars. You can probably get Hep B from using the toilet. On a sunny Saturday afternoon, its beer garden is the best hangout in San Francisco. You'll get high as a kite from the secondary pot smoke alone. End footnote. It was as epic as I remembered. I bolted the pint of vodka, chili pepper brine, tomato juice, heap of horseradish, and phallic arrangement of pickled string beans and two olives, and hopped back into the Mustang, barreling it to the airport. I forgot all about Adkami. A week later, the company called to offer me the job. Capitalism, at least as engineered by my soon-to-be former Goldman colleagues, was on life support. I had a gut intuition that the insulated and insular world of tech would be the last man standing in the coming collapse. So I haggled the Adkami offer from the Goldman Sachs trading floor on my personal phone while contemplating the starry Milky Way of Manhattan's skyline. 
I felt like the one guy inflating the life raft while everyone else was still bailing water on the sinking ship and yelling, aye, aye, to the captain. A week before my last day, I had lunch with the only senior person at Goldman Sachs who was not an inveterate asshole. Scott Weinstein had been my boss briefly, and in previous corporate lives had headed the electrical power trading desk business and the credit default swap quant team, where I anxiously built models and calculated risk. He was older by a decade than most people at the managing director level, and had been at Goldman for going on 20 years, though he had never made partner. Due to some vascular reason, perhaps his smoking, his face bloomed in a tomato-red flush when excited, which was most of the time. Combined with his barrel-chested frame and fast staccato speaking clip of indeterminate East Coast origin, Philly, Baltimore, you got the feeling he was about to burst into some Scorsese-esque paroxysm of violence at any moment. He was about the only genuine person I ever met on the trading floor. Sitting in the 47th floor Goldman Sachs canteen, with sweeping 360-degree views of Lower Manhattan and New York Harbor, we kibitzed about the various internal dramas the financial zombie apocalypse had caused. Finally, awkwardly, we got to the topic of my departure. I was a tiny fly on a big cow's ass at Goldman, but at least within my small circle, the news that I was leaving the game for some dodgy California startup was a topic of interest. Most people thought I was crazy. Don't you ever think about venturing out and doing your own thing and not this big company stuff, Scott? I asked, gesturing at the cloud of worker bees around us, pounding their sensible salads before heading back to the trading hive. My parents ran a small family business, and I watched them go through all the stresses of that, the ups and the downs. The uncertainty of their lives was terrible on them. I could never imagine going through that myself. Goldman isn't perfect, but it'll be here a long time. I wouldn't want to live with the insecurity. Within a few months, Scott Weinstein's two-decade-long career at Goldman would come to an abrupt end. His final gig had been at the bank loans desk, a business that had suffered considerable losses in the financial debacle. Things were tense in the bank loans group, and an argument between Scott and the head trader escalated into a vendetta. Scott was sacked. Just like that. Scott quickly, as these things go, found a comparable role at another bank, but the irony of the security-seeking loyal employee getting the axe never left me. In all my experience in both startups and large companies, including and especially at Facebook, I would always prefer, a hundred times prefer, being subject to the rigors of the market, the fickleness of luck, and the whims of users than to navigate the popularity contest politics of a large company surrounded by the mediocre duffers who've succeeded in life through nothing more than guile and appearances. Scott Weinstein's unfortunate example was the best advice he, or anyone else, has ever given me, and one that I ignored to my extreme peril. A week after that lunch, I cleared out my belongings from the apartment I shared with my now ex-girlfriend, hopped into a convertible BMW, and drove into the setting sun for six days to return to California and the adventure awaiting me. The Human Attention Exchange The spectacle is capital accumulated to the point where it becomes image. Guy Debord, The Society of Spectacle April 24, 2008 Count backwards from 100, but say every seventh number, ordered Officer Klein. Five feet two in her police-issue patent leather shoes. 
I tried not to look at her uniformed and badge-decorated breasts. The etiolated state of my brain wasn't helping. 193, 86, 79, 72, 65, 58, 51, 44, 37, 30, 23, 16, 9, 2. Should I go into the negatives? I asked solicitously. After years of using mathematics for a living, I could do this all night, even while three sheets to the wind. What level of education have you achieved? asked Officer Klein. I found that question telling. Some police officers are bullies who enable their sadism via a badge. Most officers, however, are really just reactionaries, believers in some simplistic Manichaean duality of the universe, in which everyone is intrinsically good or evil. Sworn defenders of order, these officers protect property and its patrician owners from violence and thievery. They separate moral wheat from chaff and discern the no-good criminal from the upstanding citizen. Such judgment is their calling, their vocation, with the full backing of whatever jerkwater town is paying for the uniforms and squad cars. To earn their leniency, you just have to be perceived as someone from the good side who has momentarily gone astray and ventured into the dark. Just a little nudge to put you back on the straight and narrow, which is what I did. PhD level. In fact, you can see my coworkers right here. We work at a venture-backed startup in the area. It's our company happy hour. I'm a research scientist there, I said, gesturing to the handful of Adkami employees who had come out to watch the show of a new employee being arrested. I was trying to wear my respectability like a perfume. Officer Klein stood there hesitatingly. This was when her backup, a thick-necked, latter-day Bull Connor, the Ur-Authority figure who now stars in many a shooting video, stepped in. Sir, can we have you blow into this? He ordered, proffering a piece of white plastic tubing as if it were one of the tequila shots I had just been downing. Whether it be a breathalyzer or a banana, you can't make eye contact with a man while going down on something. It's too weird. So I looked into the fuzzy distance while blowing into the law's little gadget. Drum roll, please. 0.91, declared Bull Connor. Damnation. The Golden State's blood alcohol limit while driving was 0.8. This scene requires some explanation. Every Thursday, a volatile nucleus of the youngest and most unattached ad chemists would stage a happy hour at one or another of the local watering holes. You'll believe me when I say that between Bohemian grad school and dissolute Wall Street with corporate Amex, I had done enough happy hour liver damage to earn the dubious rank of lush. But these new capers were cataclysmic alcohol implosions beyond any reason or planning. They left all of Friday and part of Saturday a smoking ruin. This was my first such outing, and my good behavior plan had evaporated the moment I made out with the cute Asian colleague at the bar. A round of tequila had followed an additional makeout session in the bathroom, which had led to things I couldn't then or now remember. Amid the swirl, I had noticed that my research colleague Dave, the suave bastard, had made off with the Asian girl. Twinges of Latin possessiveness tugging, I ventured out into the night to see where my prize had gone. Spotting what seemed to be their receding backs in the urban distance, I double-timed it after them, only to get disoriented in the unending commercial blob downtown San Mateo. Retracing my steps, I found myself next to the BMW 3 Series convertible that had driven me across amber waves of grain and purple mountain majesties, from East Coast civilization to this air-conditioned startup nightmare. 
Convinced that the car needed to be saved from inexplicable dangers, I decided to drive it closer to the bar, whose geographic location was now somewhat vague. Engine started, clutch popped, we were rolling. In the Southern California of my birth, we are endowed by our Creator with the self-evident right to make U-turns. Footnote. While raised in the cradle of the Cuban exile in Miami, I was born in Southern California, making me more Californian than most Silicon Valley denizens. End footnote. In Northern California, matters are more regulated. I made an illegal U-turn on 3rd Street and back to the bar, upon which the blinking red and blues filled my periphery. Bull Connor's face didn't fly into the grimace of triumphant but disapproving authority I had expected. So what happens now, officer? I asked. You are above the California blood alcohol level. You cannot drive, he stated flatly. Evaluation time. I was over the limit, but not by much. If I acted like a whiny little bitch and insisted on a blood test at the station, my right under California law, he'd have to arrest me, stick me in the car, and drive me to the station. Then they'd have to set up the blood test. By the time all the crap was done, I'd be below the limit, and he'd have missed two hours at whatever DUI trap I had driven into, ruining his night. Time for a gambit. Nothing to lose, anyhow. How about I wait here with my fellow employees for an hour or so, until my level goes down? If I let you do that, you're going to get right back in your car and drive off. This was progress. Before I was a perpetrator being castigated. Now we were merely haggling. Well, officer, how about we call a cab and you watch me get in it and we call it a night, I offered. Officer Thickneck thought for a moment. Then he nodded. This was pre-Uber, so dial, 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 motherfucker, before they changed their minds. The taxi drunk mobile pulled up, and with a wave to the gathered ad chemists and officers Klein and Thickneck, I was off. Eighty dollars later, I was back in Coal Valley, San Francisco, in the cold bosom of the drafty Victorian I shared with two hippie chicks. One week into my new Silicon Valley life, and the lesson was this. If you want to be a startup entrepreneur, get used to negotiating from positions of weakness. I'd soon have trickier situations to negotiate than convincing a cop to let me take a cab. And so will you, if you play the startup game. The next morning, I wasn't merely hungover, but was in fact still mildly drunk. The company all-hands meeting, wherein the entire company gathered to hear about new deals and employees, and generally to get pep-rallied by Murthy Nukala, the CEO, was scheduled for noon that day. I had to be there or risk having my co-workers file a missing persons report, as well as look like a pussy. My frazzled brain was slow to realize my car was still somewhere in San Mateo. $130 and too much sunlight later, I was standing beside my four-wheeled Bavarian steed at the scene of last night's triumph over the rule of law, and 15 minutes later, I was an acceptable five minutes late for the all-hands. As I walked into the company-wide meeting, a murmur was heard from a corner of the assembled crowd, expressing either surprise or amusement at my being both alive and unincarcerated. The company rumor mill had been busy that morning, I probably looked as pickled and embalmed as I felt. Murthy launched into his weekly harangue. The wheels of capitalism ground ever on. Every new form of media initially emulates the forms of the past. The first radio shows were merely people reading books on air or playing instruments with no use of clever sound effects or editing. 
The first TV shows were quiz shows that had originally appeared on radio, with mere headshots of the contestants. No sophisticated panning shots or jump cuts, simply the addition of a face to the spoken word. Internet advertising has the same atavistic resemblance to the newspaper advertising that preceded it. The first such ads were run in La Presse, a Parisian paper, in 1836. Advertisement was originally a scheme to lower the paper's selling price and capture market share. A successful strategy, it was soon copied by all newspapers. The ads themselves were rectangular frames of advertiser-created content, placed either below or alongside regular content, and marked as distinct by their blocky frame and large, garish lettering. Sound like an ad you saw on nytimes.com recently? Of course, advertising isn't the only place where this happens. We refer to spacecraft as ships, given their resemblance to the seafaring kind, and given the intellectual origins of space travel in the mathematics and engineering of marine navigation. This emulation is merely a result of the organic progression of our mad and clever species from one technological toy to another. In the same way, marketers refer to websites and mobile apps as publishers, a quaint reflection of the advertising world's origins in that of ink and newsprint. The publisher is simply the entity that brings the eyeballs to the auction block, whether via Pulitzer Prize-winning writing or a game in which you launch irate birds against antagonistic pigs. During the early days of Internet advertising, the publisher played a critical and powerful role. In the aughts, websites like Yahoo had an entire sales force, as newspapers still do, that sold those little squares of characters and images directly to advertisers. Many a fax and email flew around just to sell one insertion order in the industry argo and a wonderful double entendre. The ability to target was nil. At best, one could indicate a certain part of the website for an advertisement to appear in, say the movie section. Analytics and attribution, answering the question of who saw and eventually bought what, were equally non-existent. The only difference between the Internet and highway billboards was that you didn't have to physically glue a poster somewhere. By 2008, that had all changed, which is why a former Wall Street quant like me was at Adkami. A company called Right Media was allowing advertisers to segment users into specific clusters based on their actions on a given site. For example, putting something in a shopping cart. Originating the notion of real-time data synchronization between the online world and specific publishers, Right Media even let you tag users that came to your site, or anywhere else, and find them again later. Acquired by Yahoo in 2007, it had developed the first programmatic media buying technology. Programmatic meaning media controllable via computers talking to one another, rather than humans talking to one another via sales calls. Additionally, one could target advertisements based on user demographics like age, sex, and geography. Media buying was no longer about putting a square on the automobile or real estate section, but about finding specific users anywhere and anyhow. All this data being generated, stored, and used by both publisher and advertiser made room for people who once priced credit derivatives to do the same for parcels of human attention instead. Something else was going on. In media, money is merely expendable ammunition. Data is power. With this new programmatic technology that allowed each and every ad impression and user to be individually scrutinized and targeted, 
That power was shifting inexorably from the publisher, the owner of the eyeballs, to the advertiser, the person buying them. If my advertiser data about what you bought and browsed in the past was more important than publisher data like the fact that you were on Yahoo Autos right then, or that you were supposedly a 35-year-old male in Ohio, then the power was mine as the advertiser to determine price and desirability of media, not the publishers. As it turned out, and as Facebook would painfully realize in 2011, forming the dramatic climax of this book, this first-party advertiser data, the data that companies like Amazon know about you, is more valuable than most any publisher data. This was a seismic shift that would affect everything about how we consume media, leaving publishers essentially powerless and at the service of the various middlemen between them and advertising dollars, all in the name of targeting and accountability. If the publisher wasn't savvy enough to arm itself with sophisticated targeting and tracking before tangling with the media-buying world, then that world would come to them, in the form of countless arbitrageurs and data quacks peddling media snake oil. Which is why even august publishers like the New York Times live at the pleasure of the media supply-side technology, data management solutions, and advertising technologies that ostensibly pay them. Of course, some very protective publishers like Facebook and Google, with unique media offerings, refuse to get arbitraged so openly, and to one degree or another, attempt to own the technical and business connection between them and the advertising dollars. This is how online advertising works. Money turns into pixels and electrons in the form of ads, which turn into a scintilla of attention in someone's mind, which after a few more clicks and electrons shuffling about, turns back into money. The only goal here is to make that second pile of money as large as possible, relative to the first pile of money. That's it. Whether it be brand marketers trumpeting the new BMW X5, game developers getting players to spend real money on virtual goods, or someone selling an online nursing degree, the only difference is the time frame in which those different goals occur. In other words, the time between attention and action. If the time frame is very short, like browsing for and buying a shirt at Nordstrom's.com, it's called direct response or DR advertising. If the time frame is very long, such as making you believe life is unlivable outside the pricey mantle of a Burberry coat, it's called brand advertising. Note that the goal is the same in both, to make you buy shit you likely don't need with money you likely don't have. In the former case, the trail is easily trackable, as the conversion usually happens online, usually after clicking on the very ad you were served. Footnote. Marketers use conversion to indicate a sale, the way Mormons refer to souls saved, and footnote. In the latter, the media employed is a multi-pronged strategy of Super Bowl ads, internet advertising, postal mail, free keychains, and God knows what else. Also, the conversion happens way after the initial exposure to the media, and often offline and in a physical space, like at a car dealership. The tracking and attribution are much harder, due to both the manifold media used and the months or years gone by between the exposure and the sale. As such, brand advertising budgets, which are far larger than direct response ones, are spent in embarrassingly large broadsides, barely targeted or tracked in any way. Now you know all there is to know about advertising. The rest is technical detail and self-promoting bullshit spun by agencies. You're officially as informed as the media tycoons who run the handful of agencies that manage our media world. 
Here's something you may not know. Every time you go to Facebook or ESPN.com or wherever, you're unleashing a mad scramble of money, data, and pixels that involves undersea fiber optic cables, the world's best database technologies, and everything that is known about you by greedy strangers. Every. Single. Time. The magic of how this happens is called real-time bidding, RTB, exchanges, and we'll get into the technical details before long. For now, imagine that every time you go to CNN.com, it's as though a new sell order for one share in your brain is transmitted to a stock exchange. Picture it. Individual quanta of human attention sold, bit by bit, like so many million shares of General Motors stock, billions of times a day. Remember Spear, Leeds, and Kellogg, Goldman Sachs' old-school brokerage acquisition, and its disappearing, or disappeared, traders? The company went from hundreds of traders and two programmers to 20 programmers and two traders in a few years. That same process was just starting in the media world circa 2009 and is right now, in 2016, kicking into high gear. As part of that shift, one of the final paroxysms of wasted effort at Adcomy was taking place precisely in the RTB space. An engineer named Matthew McEachin, one of Adcomy's best, and I built an RTB bidding machine that talked to Google's huge ad exchange, the figurative New York Stock Exchange of Media, and submitted bids and ads at speeds of upwards of 100,000 requests per second. We had been ordered to do so only to feed some bullshit line Murthy was laying on potential partners that we were a real-time ads-buying company. Like so much at Adcomy, that technology would be a throwaway. But the knowledge I gained there, from poring over Google's RTB technical documentation and passing Google's merciless integration tests with our code, would set me light years ahead of the clueless product team at Facebook years later. If you had told me at the time, I wouldn't have believed you, but one day I'd be writing the technical docs and running the integration tests for Google's biggest ad exchange competitor, Facebook Exchange. But I was far, far away from that during those dark days.